One day I was out at the island because I knew there was a bunch of sharks around. And so I jumped in. I had my camera on my hookah hose behind me, filming me. I was swimming along the bottom and the visibility was pretty good. And then I looked behind me and as I turned my head, this male white shark came right out of the gloom. It rammed me with its nose, hit my head, knocked the back of my head forward just enough. And then the lower jaw knocked me pretty good and kind of knocked my head down towards the bottom. <laughs> Once that happened, I knew it was a white shark because I'd been run into before from behind. That is local legend Ron Elliott, an urchin diver talking about swimming with great white sharks. Welcome to Out the Gate, a new podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I'm Ben Shaw. Today we're headed 32 miles west of San Francisco to the Farallon Islands, a gathering place for seabirds and sea life, especially great white sharks. Ron Elliott has spent years diving the Farallons, and he's had many interactions with great whites during his countless hours underwater. And he's videotaped many of those. One especially close encounter is documented in a new film called Near Miss. It's a poetic piece by filmmaker Josh Berry, who's a friend of mine. I met Josh because we worked together in San Francisco and we bonded over our love of the ocean, traveling, and storytelling. Enjoy the conversation with Josh and I'll have some info afterwards on where you can see Near Miss, which you can also find in the show notes. Here we go. So tell me about Near Miss. It's a short film. Tell me the premise and what it's focused on. So Near Miss is a short 12-minute documentary film about a local urchin diver. His name's Ron Elliott, and he has been diving out at the Farallon Islands for decades. And he has numerous frequent close encounters with large great white sharks. And he never dives with a cage. He always dives by himself. And he's a very interesting character, as you can probably guess, just by that. And so I grew up in Point Reyes, where Ron has lived for the past 20-plus years. So I've known about Ron for a long time. and. About 10 years ago, he showed me some footage of himself interacting with a big great white shark. And I immediately knew that we had to make some sort of story. Um, and since then, Ron just kept accumulating more and more amazing underwater footage of sharks. Um, he's since retired from urchin diving 
but he still goes out during the shark season between October and like March. He goes out, he drives his boat out to the Farallons as often as he can, and he films sharks. But he doesn't do anything with the footage. So he, he's just accumulated years of spectacular underwater footage of big great white sharks. And he has video of himself interacting with the shark, and he has video of just the shark. And it's, there's no other footage out there like it. This is some of the most unique underwater shark footage that exists. And so over the years, I just spoke with Ron, and we kind of agreed on, a, and on some ideas for his story. And he's a pretty private person. He's pretty infamous in the community because of what he does. And so he likes to keep a low profile. So he has all this incredible shark footage, but he doesn't do anything with it. So I convinced him to give me all of his shark footage, and we made a story out of it. So I went out on his boat with him a couple of times. We drove out to the Farallons on his dive boat, which was really interesting just in and of itself because he usually doesn't take people on his boat with him. He usually only goes out there and dives by himself. Um, but you know, after knowing him for 10 years, I managed to convince him. And so we went out there a couple of times, and I just filmed everything I could. And then I interviewed him a couple of times, and we created this amazing story. It's kind of a day in the life, beautiful, poetic story about him and why he dives with huge sharks. Yeah, and I've seen it, and it's gorgeous, and it's engaging, and he's a real character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm curious what drew you. You have your own relationship with the water, having grown up in Point Reyes. Obviously, you know, he's a good character. You're a filmmaker, a storyteller. But what, is, what, was, what drew you? Yeah, so I grew up you know, around the water, always in West Marin. And then I started surfing when I was 14 or 15, and any surfer in West Marin, especially in Point Reyes, thinks about big sharks because they're there. You usually never see them. Like I've never seen a shark while surfing. I've never seen a shark while in the water. But you're always thinking about it because they're around. And I have a couple of friends that I grew up with who had close encounters with big sharks. Um, I had one friend who's in the official shark attack book. Rolf Ridge was attacked while there's, he was spearfishing. There's an official book? Yeah, there's an official book that chronicles every single shark attack in California. I can't remember what it's called, but it's out there. There's a website too. So Rolf is in there. Rolf is a good old, old friend of mine from surfing. So we were always fascinated slash obsessed and afraid of sharks. And then I started wondering, like, why are we so afraid of these things that we never see? And after a lot of work and a lot of kind of introspection on that, I created this monologue that I performed 
a couple of times in West Marin. And Ron was at one of those. And so he saw that. And a couple of the shark researchers who work for the, there's a couple of guys that work for the marine sanctuary and there's a couple of guys that do like state funded shark research. And they all live in West Marin and I've known them forever. And they were at this shark monologue thing I did. And afterwards they were all like, Josh, you gotta come out with us when we go out tagging sharks. Because at that point, I'd never seen a shark still. After 20 years of surfing and living in Point Reyes, I'd never seen a big shark, any, any shark at all. So I jumped on that and went out with them on their little Zodiac and brought my camera. And we saw something like 10 sharks that day. Wow. Um, just standing on the Zodiac, you know. We are on this little, like, 15-foot boat with 20-foot sharks around us. So that was amazing. And um, I remembered making direct eye contact with a shark. So we were on the boat. And this swell came and lifted this, the, the boat sank down into the trough. And the swell rose up above the height of the boat. And there was a huge, like, 16-foot shark in that swell just staring at us like 10 feet away. And it just blew my mind that this shark would just ride this swell and just look at us and direct eye contact. So that was amazing, just unforgettable. Um, so that's how it started, just surfing and being obsessed with this thing that you never see. And um, here we are now. The Farallons are obviously a destination for a lot of sailors here in the Bay Area going out to the Farallons around and back. And what was it like being out there? I haven't been out to the Farallons. Yeah, so I've always wanted to go out to the Farallons my whole life, you know, standing on the shore in Point Reyes, looking out and seeing the Farallons and knowing that it's shark central and just the, the look of those islands, they're so mythical. It's a trek to get out there. I mean, even on Ron's dive boat, which is a powerful boat, it's not a sailboat. On a good day, it'll take you 90 minutes from Tomales Bay to get out to the Farallons. And that's on a good day when there's not a lot of swell and not a lot of wind. But if it's windy with swell, it can take you two or three hours to get out there. So it's far out there. And it's totally desolate. And the thing that I remember the most about approaching the Farallons, the first time we went out there, it was super foggy. So you couldn't see anything. Like it was maybe 50 feet visibility from the boat. So it's just motoring for hours in this pea soup fog. And then all of a sudden, there's just this massive monolithic rock coming through the mist. So that's totally unforgettable. And then another thing that was unforgettable was the noise. Uh, mm. Sea lions and birds. The first time we went out there, there was no wind. And it was very foggy. And the fog dampens sound. So it's very, very, very silent until you're right on top of the island. 
and then it's like this deafening chorus of screaming sea lions and birds. And do you smell all that? Oh yeah, you smell it too, for sure. <laughs> Depending on where the wind's blowing. No GPS needed. <laughs> you find your way easily. Yeah, it's stinky. <laughs> yeah, and they're just these incredible, mysterious, desolate islands. You know, it's just rock and dirt and birds and seals. And then there's a couple of old buildings on the main island that look like these crazy haunted houses covered in bird poo and everything else and just getting battered by the weather constantly. You talk about growing up and looking out and seeing these mythical islands and I mean you grew up with an amazing landscape oh, yeah. all around you. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. You had Tamales Bay in your backyard. Yeah, it's paradise. I grew up in a, a little town called Olima, which used to be a bustling crossroads. It's not anymore. Now it's like a wedding destination. <laughs> it's paradise. It's gorgeous. It's wilderness. It's total wilderness. It's thousands of acres of forest and coastline. And the coastline is pretty inaccessible. There's not a lot of roads. So it's total coastal wilderness with a few small towns kind of scattered around it, around the edges. I mean, you have gorgeous old growth forest, gorgeous rugged coastline that's just thrashed by the weather. It's mm. not a friendly place most of the time. It's usually foggy and windy and cold with big swell just thrashing the coastline. What drew you to put yourself out into that weather? Fog, cold. You say, no, I want to get in the water. Just the challenge of it was one thing that was always fascinating to me, just being able to go out in those conditions and thrive. And just the experience of being out in that ocean, it's like, it's wild. It's, it's rough, it's cold, it's very, it's just got an amazing wild energy to it. And just being in the water in Point Reyes is, feels very different from being in the water in San Francisco or being in the water in Santa Cruz. Like it's just got a very unique feeling to it. Hmm. From the, cause it's very exposed. It's open ocean right there in a way that San Francisco and other places are not. I mean, Point Reyes sticks something like 20 miles or 15 miles out into the Pacific so it's very exposed to the weather and the open ocean, and that just makes it really, really awesome. You've done ocean sailing. You obviously grew up sailing smaller boats, but you've done ocean sailing, many miles of ocean sailing. How does your relationship with actually physically being in the ocean change your experience to being on the ocean? I think in 2004, I sailed from Emeryville Harbor in San Francisco Bay to Kauai. So it was a 19-day open ocean sail. It was an incredible trip, totally unforgettable. Best traveling for 19 days that I've ever done. Like being in the water, I think helps with sailing because I was never afraid to like jump in the water. And that just opened up a whole world to me. Like being halfway to Hawaii and then jumping in the ocean 
and swimming around for half an hour is mind-blowing. Like you're floating above 5,000 feet of water with no one around you for hundreds or thousands of miles. So just getting in the ocean in that kind of a environment is just, there's nothing like it. It's so unique and so unforgettable. So obviously you guys hit some comms. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> we actually, it took us a long, it took us 19 days because we hit some serious doldrums. Yeah. So it was a slow trip. That could be one of the most frustrating things. People say storms versus no wind. They much prefer the storm. In the first week or so of that trip, we got hit by a really heavy windstorm in the middle of the night and ripped our mainsail. Mm. So it was like all hands on deck at 3 a.m., like battling in the total pitch black. That's intense. It makes you feel very, very small very quickly. But I loved it. I don't know why. I just, let's see, I was 28 or 29 at the time. So I was definitely feeling my oats and I loved it. Like all of it, every moment, the intense middle of the night, pitch black terror and the doldrums. Like I loved just sitting on the boat with no wind in the tropical weather, seven days out of Hawaii what was the boat and how'd you get the opportunity to do this? So I was working a job that I hated. One day I was riding my bike to work and I got a flat tire and a, my good, good old friend of mine, Michael Barnett, who's a legendary sailor in West Marin, he pulled over and gave me a ride because I had a flat tire on my bike. And he was like, oh, by the way, Josh, I'm sailing to Kauai tomorrow and we could use a cook. And I thought about it for about 10 seconds and then I was in. I walked out of my job, that was just a total dead end job. And I got on the boat the next day and I was officially the cook, but you know, you're everything on the boat, cook. Yeah. We, we, uh, we were all steering the boat in, in shifts. So How many of there were you? There was four of us total, the, the owner, lived in Kauai, and he had just bought this 42-foot, all-wooden, teak, Hans Christian. Mm. So it was a gorgeous old boat, and he bought it in the Bay Area, and he wanted it in Hawaii, so he hired us to bring it to Hawaii for him. And it was in good shape? It was in pretty good shape, but everything broke. So by the time we limped into Nawili Willy Harbor in Kauai, everything was broken. Mm. We'd ripped the mainsail, the spinnaker was broken, the drive shaft was broken, which meant that the autopilot didn't work, so we had to physically steer the boat and keep it on course for about half of the 19 days. The first 19 days we had autopilot. So a lot of stuff broke. Yeah, it's always a bit of a crapshoot when yeah. uh, somebody just buys a boat, <laughs> yeah. wants it delivered. <laughs> uh, Michael, who was, he was like the first mate, he was a deeply experienced open ocean sailor. Like he'd sailed all over the Pacific, all throughout the South Pacific. So he had a ton of experience. So I felt really, really comfortable sailing with him. That's important, having somebody who you trust. Yeah. I mean, having a boat you trust is one thing, having somebody on board who you trust yeah. to get you through it. 
And it was cool, too, because we took sextant readings every single day. So we, we had GPS that we were using to navigate, but we also had a sextant that we were using every single day, just in case. That's great. So that was amazing. I mean, navigating by the stars is just, it's such an ancient, beautiful craft. It's so cool. I'm just taking a, a refresher course right now for celestial navigation, and it is pretty mind-blowing that we can just it's mind -blowing. take some angles, yeah, look at some numbers in a book, and within a couple miles figure out where we are. Yeah, and you know, sailing from California to Hawaii, it's a very large ocean, and there's not a lot of room for error because those islands don't take up a lot of space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you're off by a few degrees, you're sailing to New Zealand instead. <laughs> yeah, because uh, the wind's going one direction, and it's hard to turn around and come back. You know, after a few days sailing away from the California coast, the nighttime, if it's clear, is so bright. The stars are so bright without moon. Like, there was no moon on during our trip, or just a little bit of moon. In the middle of the night, when you're out there, the starlight illuminates the ocean. Like you can see everything by starlight alone. And you never think about that if you're on land, you know, going about your daily life. You go outside when the stars are out and it's pitch black. Yeah. But when you're out on the ocean, the starlight actually illuminates everything around you. It's amazing. And that was just spectacular to me. Blew my mind. I remember standing watch at night and just every few seconds watching the shooting star go by because they're visible. Yeah. I mean, they're happening all the time. It's just we can't see them most of the time. Yeah. Have you had a hankering to get back out and do another ocean passage? Oh, man, I would love to. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I need someone with more experience to give me the confidence. <laughs> well, stay in touch. Stay in touch. We'll, we'll figure it out. I need somebody to teach me more about surfing. You said you got into surfing when you were 14? Yeah. Started boogie boarding in... Drake's Beach in West Marin, and then quickly got a surfboard and started getting pummeled by the ocean. And you've been pummeled by the ocean all around the world. Yeah, I started traveling as a surfer when I was 18, and it's an amazing way to see the world. I've done multiple surf trips to Hawaii, the Philippines, India, Ireland, Africa, Europe, all over the United States, Mexico, Central America, South America. <laughs> so, yeah, it's an amazing way to see the world. See, I really relate to that because as much as I love sailing, I would say I'm a traveler who uses sailing to see the world. Yeah. And you've used surfing in the same way. Yeah. It's a really interesting way to see a local community through surfing. Um, I don't think it's as like clean and pure and ecologically wonderful as some surfers like to believe, but it is a really great way to connect with locals and just learn about a local community. And great thing about surfing is that you're totally immersed in the elements on a tropical island in the middle of nowhere in the Philippines, it's an amazing experience because there's like tropical downpours coming through, it's hot, 
the water is crystal clear. It's just such a visceral way to experience a place. So yeah. that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think we have to be honest with ourselves about living on sailboats as well. I mean, yes, it's a much lower impact. It's one of the reasons I like living on a sailboat is you have to be very conscious of what you're consuming, what you actually have. You can't have the amount of shit that you would have normally in a house. Um, and where your waste is going, you're all very aware of that. But you know, you have an impact traveling around the world as a privileged person who can sail into any one of these countries. And I mean, we have to acknowledge that. It's, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot that came before us to make what we do possible. Yeah, good and bad. Good and bad. But one thing that's amazing to me about sailing is you could literally sail around the entire world on less than a gallon of gasoline. Sure. Like there's nothing else out there like that. That is such a unique proposition. Yeah. And it just it's fascinating. Yeah. I understand you've seen some pretty crazy uh, vessels out there in your travels on the water. Yeah, I think the most memorable is probably coastal India. You know, you have these fishermen who hand built their own boat out of a solid log. And it's the most simple, basic setup with a very rudimentary mast, also hand-shaped, and some sort of cloth sail. You know, they operate these things by themselves way out in the ocean offshore fishing or traveling or whatever they're doing. It's fascinating. It's and it, fewer and fewer. I mean, I have a buddy yeah. who went and got a, a traditional boat in the Philippines and sailed around for a while. and. He said the, the locals would look at him like he was mad because he'd sail up to the island and say, what are you doing? We have these outboard motors that are going to get us there a lot faster now. <laughs> what are you doing with the antiquated sailboat? And now I think, well, not now, I think in the 70s or 80s, the UN started mass producing really cheap pongas, fiberglass speedboats that just took over the world. Every low-income coastal community on the planet adopted these really simple, basic fiberglass motorboats. They're everywhere, and I'm sure they've replaced almost all traditional vessels. Closer to home, I just wanted to get back to exploring the Bay Area because and we've talked before about this, that everybody complains about how crowded it's getting. But there are still those gems out there. I mean, you know them growing up, and but you said you're still discovering. Yeah. I've lived 40 years in the Bay Area now, and I've always been really curious and exploring the outdoors, and I'm always kind of flabbergasted when people complain about how crowded and how much traffic there is and how the Bay Area has changed so much, and it's, it's been destroyed, and everything else. If you get away from the parking lot and actually walk somewhere away from like the main centers of activity, it's empty. There's so many different places within a half an hour of the city that are completely empty. And I'm not going to name them because they're awesome secret spots, but if you have a little bit of an exploratory bug in you and a little bit of creativity, there's so many amazing, beautiful places around here that are so close and very few people go. 
and those same people are complaining about how crowded it is. But I have a theory that it's, it's been like this since the Bay Area started. The Bay Area has always been this kind of gold rush boom town. And mm -hmm. so in the 1800s, people were saying the same thing. Yeah. In 1851, people in San Francisco were complaining about how San Francisco was getting gentrified. It's so true, and, it, and that's one of the reasons why I love getting out on the water. I sit in traffic to get to the boat, yeah. and then I get out in the bay, and we're the only ones out there. Yes. And I have the place to myself. Yes, it's amazing. You get out on the water, and it feels like a different city. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else you want to talk about that we haven't mentioned? I don't think so. This has been great. Yeah, a I lot love, of fun. I love podcasting. Great. Well, yeah. we'll have you back. All right. And we'll get a boat and find some of those surf spots. In the yeah, South let's Pacific. go. Let's go. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. All right. Thank you. Josh's film will be screening at a few upcoming film festivals. It's part of the Save the Waves Film Festival, an international event coming soon to San Luis Obispo, Santa Cruz, and Seattle. It'll also be part of the Crested Butte Film Festival in Colorado at the end of September. And in October, the film will be available for online viewing. So for all that information and more info on the film, including the trailer, go to Near Miss Film. That's all one word, nearmissfilm.com. That's it for this week. Thanks as always for listening. I'm Ben Shaw host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing. <laughs>